0: Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today on Review the Future, we are discussing the end of Moore's Law and optimism versus pessimism.
1: Okay, so we're going to get straight into it today. We're going to start with uh, Moore's Law, which we haven't talked about for a while, but is obviously a huge topic in in futurology.
0: Yes, and I'm imagining almost everybody who listens to this podcast knows already what Moore's Law is. But just in case, if you don't, it's uh, the observation. It's not really a law of science. It's sort of the observation or the sort of economic benchmark that the uh, processor industry, the uh, central, uh, the uh, microprocessor industry, has used. Uh, for years that um, we basically expect every two years for the uh, feature size of um, or the number of transistors to double on on a microprocessor or the feature size to half. Same thing. So is uh, it,
1: Isn't it is price built into Moore's Law as well?
0: So I, I think it's uh, per constant dollars. Yeah, I think that's the way it is. So uh, every two years for the same amount of money, you should be able to get twice as many transistors or transistors of half. The size, got it. Okay. I think that's basically the way uh, that people have understood it. It's again, it's it's just a kind of guide or a benchmark, and but it has held for about sixty years uh, since Gordon Moore, who was a uh, pioneer in the microprocessing field. He started Fairchild, and then he was one of the co-founders of Intel, the people who make the processor uh, your computer at home probably uses. <clears throat> he, uh he started that company, and when he was there, he made this observation that in this industry, every two years or so, um, the dye shrinks by about half. And I'm looking at this, up, it says the
1: period is often thought of as being 18 months, which actually is a little shorter than, right. than two and it was, years. Right, it was originally
0: 12 months. He amended it in the 70s to say it was closer to two years, and then people have taken the average of that, which is 18 months, as being kind of the, the long-term standard.
1: And, of course, this is... Famously, been you know taken by futurists, people like Ray Kurzweil, and woven into larger um, positions about technological change in general, right? So, right,
0: it's a kind of foundational um, assumption of much of the future studies world.
1: So, like Kurzweil specifically fits it into as like part of his law of accelerating returns that includes uh, several paradigms for for information processing uh, both in the past and projected into the future. Uh, and so like it's, yeah, it's, it's thinking about Moore's law tends to lead you towards being bullish on the possibilities of technology in the future. Um, because again, if we can expect this kind of continuous growth in access to computing power, uh, we would expect that also enables additional innovations. Although you could you could challenge whether that's the case, which we're going to get into as well.
0: Right. Well, that's not always as linear as it sounds, but yeah, the general history of computing has borne out this idea, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all through the 80s, all through the 90s, through most of the early um, t- 2000s, first decade, uh, this was actually true. <laughs> like, if you were buying a, a desktop computer or later a mobile phone, um, it would really get that much faster uh, for constant money every every two, two-ish years. Uh, so it was... More of just an observed reality than it necessarily was a prediction but you know that will last forever.
1: That constancy is also really useful if you're an engineer planning, right? right? Which is, I think, how, how Kurzweil specifically got into it, right? Because if you can count on a certain amount of computing power by a certain date, it makes it a lot easier to to plan your invention, to come out at a time when it actually can scale yes. and, and be usable.
0: Particularly for software engineers, this is crucially valuable. Software companies have been able to do so much better because they can plan accurately what next generation computers will be able to do. And they can write the software on this year's generation while they wait for next year's. that will actually be able to run it in a good way to come out. And then they benefit from that speed jump, right? Uh, So that's been a a major factor in why software has been able to be so good and so um, profitable over the last however long. What's interesting, right, is it's actually relatively
1: few actors that bring about this progress, right? I mean, that's in ships. right. I mean, we're talking about,
0: yeah, there's about four major foundries in the world. So we're basically talking about global foundries, which is the former AMD, um, ATI, uh, uh, world. There's Intel, there's Samsung, and there's the, uh, Taiwan, uh, semiconductor, um, company, uh, TMSC, I think is their acronym. I'm not totally sure, but they're the one that basically, uh, farms out. Like they kind of, build for everybody else who designs, um, many, many companies design chips, but there's really just those four for, um, for at the high end, you know, best possible practices, um, making chips.
1: So on some level, I mean, this is just something that they collectively decide to do and having it like giving it a name and stating it like it's a law probably has some aspects of being a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms Big of time. it, it then becomes the, the guidepost for what they're aiming for year to year in terms of goals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, occasionally they slip a little bit, and that's happened a few times in the late 90s. There was a couple of years there where uh, they slipped, but then they came roaring back um, when the core architecture came out. And uh, that's happened a few times where it'll start to slow down a little bit, but then um, – They'll come up with a new technological solution to the problem they're having, whether it's heat dis, uh, or something else. And and they'll they'll be able to uh, squeeze a few more years out of out of uh, Moore's law, basically. And they keep basically making it true. Um, but yeah, this is something that uh, there's no law of nature that says it has to be true. There's no underlying logic to it that says um, it will continue on forever. And in fact, it's always been known that uh, on silicon, it would definitely not go on forever. And they would definitely get to a point around five nanometers where they could no longer do it um, because you literally get of physics, right? Yes, it's a physics problem. You literally get to feature sizes that are only a few atoms across and when that happens, uh, the leakage is just unacceptable. You can't get good performance.
1: But if you adopt the sort of larger view that people like Kurzweil adopt, then you just say, OK, this continues. Maybe it's not on you know the exact same architecture, but you have some paradigm shift that allows you to keep increasing computing power roughly along these lines.
0: Right. Kurzweil's big innovation was to trace it backwards from before the integrated circuit all the way back to our relay and vacuum tube computer designs and to show that this has been going on since before there were integrated circuits, that it's just a general law of technological progress and not a specific feature of photolithography on silicon, right? Which is how Gordon Moore initially conceived of it. And that was a big innovation. And if he's right, then what we're going to see is uh, Moore's law is definitely going to end for silicon. Um, The major, Companies are down to 14 nanometer process right now. They're a little late on getting to 10 nanometer. It's not totally certain that they're going to get to 10 nanometer, uh, but they probably will. But everybody thinks that seven or five is is the end of the line. Uh, it's just not going to get smaller than, than one of those numbers. Um, so the pressure is mounting on whether
1: or not we're going to find this next paradigm shift in time. Exactly,
0: exactly. That's the thing, is that maybe we shift out of this paradigm into a new one or maybe we miss that boat by a small or a lot uh, amount of time. And then and then we have to see, you know, what happens next.
1: Wait, do we know exactly when that year roughly would be? Since this is a time-based prediction.
0: Well, it would be already if they were on schedule, but they're not. They,
1: they would already have the new paradigm?
0: They would have, um, I think it was supposed to be this, or last year, that 10 nanometer was supposed to come out, at least on Intel's schedule. They're the biggest, they're the best sort of, 800-pound gorilla here. So that's the one we're mostly talking about. Mm -hmm. The other companies are a little bit behind them. Even if they say they have a 10-nanometer process, it's probably not as small as Intel's would be because they all are using these more like marketing terms than like true scientific terms. But let's say they... So anyway, just Intel, at Intel, they are currently, I think, more than a year late in getting to 10 nanometers.
1: But let's say they get to 10 and, yeah, it's a little late. Yeah. Right? And then you said the... the, So the next one
0: is 7... Right. And then after that, possibly five if they can figure it out. And so those were initially, I think only supposed to you know take us another few five or six years. Uh, but now this could take longer because it's turning out to be harder than they thought.
1: but if they if they were to catch up right, right. and make up for lost time and you were to assume these sort of roughly 18 month periods, right. That, yeah, we'd be talking four or five years out from now, right. give or take. Give or take, yeah, is when we would have to have the next paradigm really, basically, ready to go. Exactly. And that would be something like what?
0: And they've had thirty or so years to plan for this, so yeah, they've yeah. been trying to do it. The there are a couple of different, um, there are a couple of different things that they might try. Uh, so one thing that they might try is called three uh, D chips. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty simple idea of just layering silicon on top of uh, itself. Um, they're already experimenting some with that, but there's been limited success. My understanding is that, uh, heat issues are a big problem when you layer things. So, uh, that may not be the paradigm shift that it was cracked up to be. So if
1: you're stacking your chips, you're talking about like the center of it, uh, it would be hard to dissipate heat from. Is that the idea? Yeah.
0: I think the issue is that each layer or wafer of chip, um, is going to then hold in and direct heat at the other layers at least on one side so it strikes me as like just as a physics problem sort of difficult to solve now maybe there's things i don't know about that solve this but um I, i think that the progress on 3d chips has been slower than was initially expected for that reason um further down the line there's all this various quantum based computing and i don't Understand all of it. Quantum computing, yeah, is something that I don't think we can explain. Very hard to understand yeah, as yeah. is everything related to quantum mechanics. But uh, there have been recent breakthroughs in what's called valleytronics which is a really fun thing to say, and it's some technique that, <laughs> at the risk of being wrong here, I'm going to just really uh, vaguely say what it is. it's some technique for reading in and out information. Um, about states, about the spin states of electrons, which allows you to make quantum computing work at room temperature, uh, rather than having to have a uh, super-cooled science experiment in order to run a computer. So exactly how it works, I don't know. I don't really even understand what a spin valley is, to be honest, but I read something that tells you it's explaining it, and I just didn't get it. Um, I
1: would love to have someone come on <laughs> if there is someone who can explain this stuff in roughly layman's language.
0: Yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I think I'm a pretty smart person, but when I read about quantum mechanics, my eyes cross. Um, well, neither of us have a background, really, in physics, right? No, I mean, we're much more social scientists. true. People. I don't have a background in physics beyond high school, and I uh, haven't done any advanced math, so that probably is hurting me in trying to understand it. But anyhow... Um, there are some advances. It looks like there might be quantum approaches that might be the kind of, um, ultimate home run mm-hmm. technology that if we can get on that train, that will be a more like train that will, uh, move quickly because, uh, you can get into the terahertz range if you are, you know, relying on spin states because, um, that's how fast that stuff works, I guess, at that scale. Um, uh, the, another, um, technology that might, come in uh, sort of intermediate to those two, uh, which we've talked about, I think before, is uh, the various carbon derived technologies so um, nanotubes mm-hmm. or other kinds of uh, miniature carbon um, structures that can uh, conduct either electricity or light in various ways to do. Um... So th- that that's a whole class of things that you know graphene, based things that we can um expect might be tried or
1: a weirder one right would be like like wet wear like some sort of biological computing yeah I, mean, I don't know that anybody's seriously pursuing that
0: i didn't see uh in my quick research yesterday anybody seriously um pursuing that but that is something that like they're, they're periodically are i know they do some like dna computers now mm-hmm. which use not like a living tissue but just the the way that dna works they use that to do some calculations i don't know why that's good or what it's like particularly good for but um yeah i think we might see some biological computing as well but that doesn't seem like it's going to be the the paradigm that that takes over to me
1: so okay so we're running up against like the wall here potentially i mean right
0: well i think actually this is something we haven't really said which is just um is Moore's law over, right? Like people have been talking for about three years about the idea that maybe Moore's law is over. Is this the day that Moore's law died? And I just set out to like, this was my, my initial impetus for doing this topic was I just set out to sort of answer that question for myself. And I think it depends on the vertical of chips you're talking about. But uh, if you're talking about desktop computers and laptop computers, like computers that run desktop operating systems, I think it's, undeniably true that Moore's law is dead. That like if you look at the processes, the speed and the price of current generation laptop and desktop and server chips um and then you look at what they were 3 years ago we have not seen a Moore's law worth of progress in Now,
1: one thing that's I mean again because this isn't like a real law, it's just something that people yeah, in the world to make happen. Yeah. Um, you have to consider forces like demand, right? I mean, and it seems like there may not be much consumer demand for, you know, desktop and laptop computing that's significantly better at this point.
0: Right. That's probably why we've uh, seen such a dramatic drop-off in improvement. Although, obviously, they still sell lots and lots of desktop uh, computers um, and uh, desktop-running systems. Uh, in fact, I think servers are the place with the most growth in that field. But That would um, make sense. But still, yeah, you're right. There is just way more growth, like exponentially more growth in the mobile market, or at least there has been over the last several years. And in the mobile market, it's not as clear that Moore's Law is over. I mean, mobile chips have been improving at a Moore's Law-like clip uh, for some time. And we don't need to get into all the technical differences of mobile chips, but the one major technical difference of mobile chips versus the kind you have in your laptop is that the whole system, all of the components, are on the chip, right? So, in addition to putting in uh, a central processor, which gets smaller by you know each time you do it, there are also these analog components like radios and there are even uh, mechanical components like uh, gyroscopes so that's like some balls in a in a box right i mean that's like a very short sure, again like tilt physical and thing yeah like
1: uh yeah exactly. so
0: we're seeing um a certain amount of those things they're all being integrated into one thing and that thing is still getting smaller at a kind of more like clip um Although I think the demand that's been driving that is now starting uh, to wane. And I think we just had the first year-over-year decline in iPhone sales this past quarter. So we're talking about, this is the very beginning of this, but I think the same thing that happened to desktop computers maybe uh, maybe 10 years ago is now happening right now to mobile Uh, Which is like, yeah, an interesting, like
1: not exactly related to Moore's Law, but it's separate interesting conversation, which is just, you know, there doesn't seem to be as much demand at the consumer level for computing power, because most of us are able to do the things we want to do. And the new features that are being offered are not all that exciting. It seems like they're kind of stretching to figure out what's the cool thing they can put in a new iPhone that's actually going to make people pay attention. At
0: well, point. at this point, most of the cool new things that we do with our computer are driven by servers on a farm somewhere because they're an app that sure. runs so on that's something. Sure, so that's where more app. of the action is. Yeah. Right, right. So I think that action actually is still very strong, but it's all kind of happening on a server somewhere, which is just, you know, they just add more boxes. The specific speed of one box is not really that crucial. Um, and obviously, they still want to improve and get faster and serve more customers more quickly, but it's not It doesn't have the same like two year we're gonna buy a new product cycle that I think really, um, particularly in mobile, was really driving the um, the improvements for a while there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you're right. We've gotten to a point where uh, a lot of the things you can think of to do with a computer um, uh, personally can be done with commodity cheap hardware. And uh, the only kinds of things that you really need a lot of hardware for, you're like renting that hardware from Amazon. You're not like buying it yourself because it's server basically.
1: Now there are use cases where you can imagine needing uh, really good hardware mm-hmm. um, it, it, at both the consumer level and you know at the more business server level, right? I mean, one of them at the consumer level is VR, right? Obviously, so, right. So powering VR may drive,
0: Well, and here's my next uh, sort of vertical that I was going to mention. So desktops, dead. Mobile, almost dead, like on life support. I think it's going to die soon. Mm -hmm. But one place that it is almost certainly not dead is in what we call GPUs, right? So that stands for graphics processor unit. You probably have one of these in your PC if you ever like to play video games. And of course, if you're using VR, you have to have a very good one. Basically, it's the same class of hardware. It's just a better one uh, to drive VR. Um so GPUs are exhibiting very more like growth and if you look at um there's this great chart I'll find a link to it for the uh release that Rodney Brooks put on his uh webpage this was the article I discussed with you earlier where Rodney Brooks and Ray Kurzweil have a little argument in the comments which is kind of amusing to read but uh Rodney Brooks the uh the robotics uh, entrepreneur he put a post where he updated Kurzweil's old chart And, um, the old chart came from like a 2009 book. So it ends in like 2010 and he charted the rest of the next several years and it continues. And you see, uh, um, the, I think like the Watson computers on there or like one of those big IBM computers is on there. And then the last few things on the chart where the last few Moore's law, um, conforming data points are, are, gpus there are a couple of different gpus made by um nvidia and stuff like that so uh i think it's interesting that you can continue that chart but you basically have to change paradigms to um these gpus and if you're not which is
1: not as dramatic a paradigm shift as you know we were just talking about a second ago right not as
0: dramatic as going from like relays to vacuum tubes or vacuum tubes to transistors or transistors to integrated circuits but still pretty big because i think the main difference between a gpu and a cpu is the philosophy of how computing is done where a cpu is like this single thing that's doing things in order right Mm -hmm. um but a gpu is actually a lot of much slower cpus all in a giant massively parallel network um and that does seem to be kind of
1: analogous to the other so rather than having one sprinter, you have like a bunch of joggers. Exactly. Oh, yeah, I mean uh, to give a dumb analogy. Sure.
0: Uh, right. And if you're if the type of work you're doing is more like a relay, um, then that will just go so much faster. You know, rather than if it's a single linear sprint (laughs) right Right. um so uh to carry your analogy perhaps too far um so yeah i mean that's right And, and 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 it's similar in structure to a server farm too right a server farm is also massively parallel and it's sort of doing a lot of little things at once uh rather than doing one big thing and so i think in these two areas where you have massive parallelism we are actually still seeing um the kinds of gains that uh that we saw in the uh, in the old Moore's law paradigm. Um, So on that level, I don't think it's dead in all ways for all things. Um, Eventually, we get to a point where it's dead for silicon, which means anything you're making in silicon, including GPUs, just can't get any faster. I don't think we're there yet.
1: So we can't say it's dead, but we could say the pressure is on. Of Of course, the pressure is kind of always on at any point in the chart, right? I mean, that's sort of what it the whole thing means.
0: Yeah, but they've had 30 years where they knew they needed a new paradigm at the end of that 30 years and we're rapidly approaching that deadline and it looks like we might get a small reprieve from that deadline by things um, just basically progressing less quickly than we thought at the very end of the process. Um, but we're going to need that we're going to need that paradigm soon <laughs> essentially. Right. Um, there's a few consequences though. I wanted to talk about Like, just to make it more future and more, like, speculative and fun, I want to talk about, um, okay, so the weak, the weak version of Moore's Loving Dead, which is, I think, what the truth is, is it's not over in a grand sense. It's just having a sort of rough paradigm shift, right, where, like, uh, we thought that might happen smoothly. It's not happening that smoothly. It's going to sort of... Uh, Silicon is going to sort of sputter and peter out over the next few years. And we might have a little bit of a plateau. And we might have a little bit of a plateau before uh, whether it's carbon nanotubes or some kind of quantum computing or something takes over and then we we, we, we get back on the train, right? Uh, that's the weak version. But there's a possibility that it's more of a strong version, which that it's truly over for Silicon or that it, we're there, almost there. And, and that when we get there, that's the end of the line for usable paradigms. That for some reason, these other paradigms that are under investigation never become fully practical to to um, manufacture at mass scale. And if that's ca- the case, we won't forget how to make silicon. Of course, we'll k- continue to make silicon and it'll continue to get cheaper and more commodity. It just won't get faster, right? It'll sort of uh, plateau out at quality, at a certain quality level, and that'll be that. Um so I just wanted to talk briefly before we end this topic on like what changes in that world? What are the consequences of strong death of Moore's law?
1: Right. So, uh, I mean, there's still, you can innovate in software,
0: mm-hmm. right? right? In so, fact, it
1: puts a lot more pressure to, to innovate in software in terms of optimization.
0: Right. And there's been a longstanding sort of anecdotal feeling in software development that we rely too much on the hardware getting better. Um, and when we don't do enough to optimize our software. So this would, in a way, force um, people to really focus on optimization.
1: Yeah, it really just changes the focus, right? Because mm-hmm. now I think you're more incentivized to not optimize, mm-hmm. to just get like something done quickly at a relatively high level of programming mm-hmm. that will run on you know next year's machine um, or the machine of... Of a couple years from now. But yeah, I mean, this would just change the focus to taking your existing software and just drilling down and really optimizing it more and more and more. And that might be actually, you might be able to get a lot of mileage out of that to the extent that there's like a lot of optimization that could be done that's not being done now. It's hard to sort of quantify that, right? Like how much um, optimization is just sort of being like left on the table and not taking it Advantage
0: of right, exactly. I guess we'll find out if we get into this yeah, world yeah. how much of that was was low hanging fruit because I don't think we do know, and I, I'm a little skeptical that there's as much as some people say, but I, I, it's hard to know without um, without experiencing it. So yeah, that's one major thing: is lean software could uh, become far more common. Um, another thing that has been happening to some extent that I think would happen more is that we'd get more um, of what are called ASICs and FPGA. So uh, those are two different things, but they're related. An ASIC is an application-specific integrated circuit, so it's a chip that has some software baked into it. That's the way to explain it.
1: Oh right, okay, okay. Which is a type of optimization in a way. Exactly.
0: Right? It's it's a it's a str- it's a strategy to get really low-level optimization because you're really you're you're putting it in such close terms to the processor. You're literally burning it right into the processor, right? So um, that's exactly what that's for. A lot of mobile phones use these things. um, And uh, increasingly, computers are using them. And it's just a a very common strategy these days. Uh, More and more of these, uh, like anybody who licensed designs from ARM, they're going to then build some of their own applications into the chip. And then, uh, you know, somebody like the Taiwan uh, Foundry um, prints up the chip for them with their software baked right in, right? And then the next step for that, and Microsoft has really been pushing this one lately, but this has been around for a while, is the FPGA, which is a field programmable gate array. So that is a processor that actually can be programmed at the hardware level by the end user. So unlike um, the processors like the regular Intel processor, which can be programmed by the end user by loading um, some code off of a storage device and running it through the processor... This can, it can do that, but it can also have its fundamental hardware processing reprogrammed, its fundamental hardware um, design reprogrammed to some degree by the end user um, in a persistent way.
1: So is the idea there that um, since you, you basically to leave the door open to optimization on purpose, like rather than writing it, like in other words, if you know that the, the hardware that you're making is going to be used for two years and then thrown away. Right. Right? Then you don't need to make it easily modifiable. Right. But if you think that like this is the hardware you're going to be stuck with for 10 years, then it makes sense to design it in a way that you can continue to improve upon it.
0: Right. It's basically an ASIC made with a shorter update cycle. Right. That's exactly it. Okay. So, yeah. So, if you... Um, I am mean, depending on what your update cycle is, uh, if you update once a year, then... Uh, right. A two-year... Um, piece of equipment, you just make an ASIC. But if it's a four-year piece of equipment, then you want to get that yearly update in because by the third year, you're going to have something really valuable there. So then you go with the FPGA. And, uh, you know, there are, I'm sure, trade-offs in the design of them. I'm not <laughs> technical enough or knowledgeable enough to know what those trade-offs are, uh, but they are more or less um, sub subcategories of the same type of thing. And they just have different levels of user configurability. Part of the reason to do FPGAs also is that, uh, you know, the ASIC has to be designed in-house, then sent to the foundry, and then they, you know, they take receipt of it. This is, the FPGA is something the foundry can make on its own. It doesn't know exactly what you're going to use it for. You get it in-house, you program it until it works, and then you stick it in your product and go, Got right? It. So part of the reason that you might want to use one of these is just workflow. Um just depending on who's designing what part of the product and who's providing what what parts. Um, but yeah, they're the kind of thing that allows you to build software into hardware, which lets you do better optimization and lets you take advantage of designing something for a specific task rather than designing something to be generally good at all math tasks like a CPU is. And by doing that, you can get more speed for that task. You'll always be at the cost of other tasks, but, that's okay as long as, you know, what you're building is only used for this one thing, right? So
1: a lot of these things could, you know, pretty much mitigate this issue. Yeah. A a great deal to the fact that, you know, we might not even really see anything that looks like a a decline in innovation. It's hard to say.
0: Well, I think we'll see it in the sense that we'll see... I mean, we've been noticing how our clock speeds have been going up and our computer prices have been going down, and those things are going to change. But no, I don't think we'll necessarily... Um, you know, have societal collapse or anything like that if this does But how matter. does this
1: affect, like, high-end research, right? Like, the people that are actually pushing the envelope of the best possible supercomputers, right? People that are doing um, AI research projects or, or other things that are extremely intensive.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a big lo- loss for them. There's no two ways around it, right? Because they're really benefiting the most from this curve, and they don't provide enough demand on their own to really drive a market. So... Um, you know, there's things they can do. they can take the like um, they'll have to spend more like uh, SETI at home approach and like try to, you know, steal some cycles farm out cycle. from farm out some cycles from from willing people around the world who support what they do and you know as time goes on, there'll still be just more and more computers in the world, so the price per compute cycle will still go down some uh, over time. but yeah, I mean, the fact is uh, they're benefiting a lot from. From this system, and and the system does seem to be ending. (laughs) Well, it would like
1: if you're a team, for example, that's like that's focused on, you know, developing, you know, powerful AI, for example, right? I mean, you benefit from basically just having this task, you know, offloaded to these chip manufacturers, yes, and just expecting that that's just going to come in your door, and you can concentrate on the high level programming that you're doing on those machines.
0: Yes, it Um, happens that AI and machine learning, in particular are what are unusual among software tasks in that they're very massively parallel. And so they have been getting quite a lot of benefit out of, um, basically this GPU growth that we've been seeing. Um, now that could end of course. Uh, but, um, but if parallelism turns out to continue to scale, Then they will be insulated. Just as a just that particular example, but um, but yeah, I think that's right. I think more generally speaking, anybody who's doing uh, complex scientific calculations like definitely wants this to continue. Well, and they'd have because otherwise the alternative is they have to spend more
1: time themselves thinking about how to you know optimize the hardware they have access to. Like no, they have to have more staff and more manpower dedicated. To right. that separate question, right, <laughs> rather than just focusing on what they're focusing on, potentially, right, right. Um, it's really kind of hard to say.
0: But it uh, is hard to say. And then there is a third consequence, which is like maybe we get better algorithms that are more efficient. You know, um, which is not just like optimizing our software, but more generally, getting. Uh, it's it's unknown whether we have like the algorithms we have uh, because of the hardware we have or what you know that's like a kind of complicated thing it's a chicken egg thing right it's a chicken egg thing yeah because maybe the computer is better and that lets you search more possibility space and find more better algorithms right or maybe uh it it's the opposite and that as the because the computer is better you don't need a better algorithm you're going to use the a worse one that you came up with quickly because it works on the faster computer yeah, when we don't you, know.
1: And you could take a position that you know, if hardware got sort of frozen, right. uh, in some senses for a while, that that would have potentially some positive consequences in terms of again optimizing your code to be better. Mm-hmm. There might be security gains. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a crazy thing to posit, but you know, if you're again, if your hardware is more static and you can right. iterate on the problems, same right. software better, mm-hmm. I mean, there could be societal benefits to that. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it might just give our society more time to deal with some of these crazy changes, too. I mean, I could see there being benefits to just a slower, not a complete end to progress, but a just slower progress rate uh, in computing, even though it obviously also threatens certain things that I'm hoping come to pass. Now, going
1: back to that little thread on the internet that you found yeah. uh, with uh, Kurzweil and uh, Rodney Brooks. Right. Uh which is funny because I, you know, of course Kurzweil saw a Google alert for his name and, That's exactly and showed what up there to, to comment. Yeah. Uh, I, I expect that, you know, Kurzweil would not be concerned about this, right? He's well,
0: he was like, what do you think about 3D chips? And then Rodney Brooks was talking to him about the heat problems with 3D chips, which, you know, it's like 3D chips, I think, were what everybody was assuming would be the intermediate phase between this and the next big, big technology. Um, if they never come, then maybe we just have a short plateau period followed by carbon nanotubes. Uh, the much scarier idea is maybe this is it. And this is sort of as good as silicon's ever going to get. And we're not going to really get a better technology than silicon. And if that really is true, then that would change a bunch of my priors with regard to, you know, what I think is plausible for our near future.
1: Well, why don't we check in again on this topic in 18 months? All right. One Moore's Law cycle. May 4th, 2018. So we'll- I think.
0: I think we can figure that out. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: We'll see. We'll see where it's going. I think that's about all we can say about it for now, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, what else did we want? to
1: Yeah, yeah. On? So I wanted to uh, talk about something much less technical and uh, and fuzzier. It's, it's it's more of a conversation topic. I don't know. Ex- I have some thoughts about this, but I don't know exactly where this is going to go. Okay. Um, but I was thinking about just the the general ideas of optimism and pessimism. Okay um, as it relates to uh, futurology, both people that write about the future and predict about the future, and to a lesser extent, science fiction and stories about the future mm-hmm. um, And I think it's if you think about it, and if you look at you know a list of books on a bookshelf that are in this genre, um, I think you can see that most sci-fi books, or work of futurism tend to fall into one of these two modes, this like optimistic mode or the pessimistic mode it would actually be uh, like a fun exercise to sort of look at a list of book titles and see how quickly you could sort of place them into one camp or the other. Sure. But I I, I think that's like generally, you know, how these things divide up, right? Um, Oh, in fact, uh, there's uh, both the the Futurology subreddit, which we've referenced several times, but there's the Companion Dark Futurology (laughs) subreddit. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, that's another space where, again, there's like clearly two camps here. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And people tend to fall into one or the other. Right. Um, And most writing, again, is either some sort of more pessimistic cautionary tale or a more optimistic, you know, cheerleading call to action. Right. Um, And I think it happens on the level that people that are writing about the future, they'll sort of self-adopt one of these categories. Mm -hmm. But I also think that viewers tend to apply these categories. So it's sort of a cycle, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you try to write something... That isn't clear about whether it's being optimistic or pessimistic. Yes. Your readers will tend to assign it one of those things anyways, which we found ourselves. Yes, in. I
0: have experienced this with, with our project and with other ones. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, including yeah. with this podcast, but also with our with our comic. Right. Um, you know, you do something that you're just you're just sort of trying to explore ideas and and get to some semblance of what you think the truth might be. Um, but people tend to say, like, well, what's the bottom line here? Is this optimistic or pessimistic or they they tend to have decided in their mind that it's one or the other, right? Are are we saying good things about the future or bad things? Um, And so I was thinking about this and I, I know, I mean, another person who we reference a lot, Robin Hanson has lamented this himself because he, you know, in his own writing always says that he's like trying hard to be descriptive, not prescriptive. Like in his book, Age of M, which we've talked about a lot about this world of emulated minds um, you know, pe- a lot of people look at his description of that world and they freak out. and They say, like, this is a terrible dystopia, right? And he then tries to say, no, I'm just trying to, like, use basic, uh, you know, conservative economic thinking and extrapolate, you know, and I, I don't have, like, a stance toward this one way or another. Right. This is not a type of advocacy. And that's the thing is that mo- a lot of times when people are being optimistic, they're sort of advocating, right? Right. For- they're being, like, normative. Right. Right. Um, or, or being pessimistic, they're also advocating. Um, so now I was thinking about this, and I was, I, I was sort of thinking about it first in the sense of like, oh, this is kind of a frustrating thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, can't we find a nice middle ground here mm-hmm. um, where we can talk about the future without, you know, immediately lumping it into one of these categories? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I was thinking further about it, and I was like, actually, that's maybe not possible. And I don't just mean that in the sense that no one can ever truly be neutral, um, but I mean that in the sense that um, lines in this area are like pretty blurry between what prescriptive and descriptive means, even though people like Robin might want to draw that distinction. Right. Um, and it's because prediction in these social areas, right, um, actually affects outcomes. Right. So if you make a prediction, like let's talk about a really simple prediction, like what you know are the odds that I'm going to draw an ace of spades out of a deck of cards? Mm-hmm. Right. That's not affected by... Uh, social factors, right? right? If
0: I, yeah, if I think it would be good for you to draw that ace, that doesn't affect what you That's not actually doing. going to affect, right, like, right. the odds of drawing the card. It's right. still going
1: to be one out of 52 either way. Right. Right, but when you start making social predictions about what people are going to do, which this relates directly to our Moore's Law conversation, exactly, because mm-hmm. that's a social prediction about what the chip manufacturers are right, going to do. Right, and quite
0: an optimistic one. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. So
1: those predictions right. actually affect the outcome. Because it's people that have to cause the outcome and people hear your prediction and maybe they get excited by the optimism or turned off by the pessimism or, or the opposite, right? They get incentivized by the pessimism or like made complacent by the optimism.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um,
1: So I actually think I've sort of come around on this. I actually think like there's actually no escaping this situation and there's maybe actually good reasons why. Um, talking about the future is sort of always a type of advocacy Uh in a way. Because, I mean, you know, obviously some people have very small audiences and very small influences. (laughs) Ourselves (laughs) probably included. (laughs) But, I mean, you're still contributing to a larger conversation in some way. And it's it's not implausible that what you say has an impact. Sure. Otherwise, why are you even bothering? Right? Right. Um, So... And, and so then I was starting to think about, okay, what are the merits of these actual positions? Optimism versus pessimism. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So the danger of too much optimism, right, mm-hmm. is complacency. Right. And I've seen this argued before. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a lot of people don't like Kurzweil because he's so optimistic. And people read him to say, be saying that, you know, this is a dangerous way that Kurzweil is talking because he's just showing these graphs and he's acting like there's this inevitable march of progress, and if everybody actually buys into that and, you know, becomes this singularitarian Kurzweilian optimist, then everybody's going to be complacent and not actually build the future we need to build, and they're not going to be concerned about the dangers, right? That's the concern with too much optimism. Right. Likewise, the concern with too much pessimism is that people get hopeless. Right. Think They give up on the idea of progress entirely. Right. Uh, and you know, we all just like wallow in self pity or, or
0: turn to loss aversion and right. Yeah. Yeah. And we, yeah.
1: um, we, um, yeah. you know, we dig in the heels and everybody gets risk averse and, right. and, and, and dangers can arise out of that just as easily. Sure. Um, and you know, I, I've been, uh, sort of engaging with, uh, some of Steven Pinker's ideas recently yeah. and, and follow up to my, my previous episode on that. And he's probably in this camp of people that, I mean, his, from what I can tell, his, his most recent book is, is very much um, in this optimistic mode of trying to be a corrective, right, to the fact that there's a lot of pessimism out there, mm-hmm. and he worries that that's destructive, right? I mean, that creates hopelessness and actually slows down progress in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Again, the concern here is that the way you describe the future actually impacts how it happens. Right. So I don't know. What's your first like, instinct? Did you, do you think either of those things is more concerning to you? Uh, is optimism too much optimism more dangerous, or is too much pessimism more dangerous, or is that just a like unanswerable question?
0: I don't know because I can also I feel like um, because they're mirror images of each other, and right. then the their benefit states are also mirror images of each other. Um, it does seem like societies probably need a balance of optimism and pessimism, but that individuals are probably highly variable in how they respond to these things, right? So, like, you may be the person who, uh, when presented with a pessimistic worldview, um, gets inspired to make a difference, whereas I may be the person who, when I hear that pessimistic worldview, I want to crawl under my bed and uh, and cry, right? And uh, You know, or just, like, uh, do a bunch of drugs and party and, you know... Sure, or be hedonistic <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah, but just not solve the problem. Um, I'm not sure statistically if like there's more of you's or more of me's than in the the world. Uh, But I imagine any given society probably has people in both camps and needs some balance of these views to be out there in the marketplace of ideas for people to hear. Um, Well, so let me ask like probably an an easier
1: question to answer, uh, uh, which is, you know, what do you think is like the dominant mood and we'll limit this to America since that's the society we know best. Mm-hmm. But like, what's the dominant mood right now? Is it optimism or pessimism? In other words, do, which direction do we need to correct it? Are people being too optimistic about technology or
0: too pessimistic? Oh, that's interesting.
1: Or, and not just maybe even about technology, but about progress in general.
0: Right. So I think in general, the mood feels very pessimistic right now.
1: I think that's the case. Yeah. Um,
0: and I don't think that's been true through my whole life. I think it's ebbed and flowed. Um, and there have been moments of optimism that I might have pointed at and said, there's too much optimism right now at this moment, you know, maybe in the late nineties or the tail end of the Obama administration. Well, that's the thing is that like leaders set the tone a lot, right? Um, leadership sets the tone. And then the economic situation, those are the two things I think really like affect things. And right now our economic situation is not terrible, but our leadership is, um, anxiety inducing for a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, it could be worse. I mean, well, and
1: it's not just that it's anxiety inducing in terms of like, whatever you think of the quality of Trump's leadership. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, it's also that those are two s- political strategies, right? right? One is, which is to say the future can be great. Hope right. and change, which was Obama's message. Right. The other is that like everything is falling the, apart. The past. Is America t- is, is right, a disaster. Best, right. But we can make it great again, which was Trump's message. Right. right. So like you can, Again, they're they're very explicitly... Oh, yeah. And he he
0: is explicitly pessimistic just in general, not just about technology, but about everything. He's a kind of pessimistic character. Um, So, yeah, I think that feels like the dominant mood. It feels like a recent shift to that being the dominant mood across not just... I mean, there's always a little hand-wringing about technological progress, but Mm -hmm. across everything, that pessimism seems like it's within the last year or two. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I I think if I, I think I also am generally a bit more of an optimist myself, so I maybe am more sensitive to that in the culture, but, but yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's where I would push back at the moment. Um,
1: yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I do think there's a point to be made, like, I mean, I guess if, if I would sort of try to articulate what seems like the healthy or desired middle ground to me, um, would be something like, you know. Progress is possible, but it's going to require really hard work. Yes. Right? Right. And I mean, something like that, right, is maybe sort of like, but that's not an easy message to convey. That doesn't sound good. People don't necessarily respond to that. So that's not the form the most writing or advocacy or politics takes.
0: Right. Well, and it's more complicated than it's going to require hard work because it's not going to require the same amount of hard work from everyone. And sometimes you really do just benefit from things that other people do. I think progress is possible, but not inevitable is maybe the way I would want to phrase it. Sure. And that you, because I think the, the danger is that complacency is that you just start to realize that you can piggyback on others' progress and look like (laughs) to a large extent, I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm made aware of the fact that we're doing that right now.
1: So actually I, I think about this sometimes with when I'm, when I'm teaching Okay, which is something I do a lot for my day job. Mm-hmm. In terms of you know what you tell a student to motivate them, right? Because you can have the same problem yeah. right at, at a micro scale with teaching, right? Where where you um, you're too like if you tell a, a kid that they're smart, for example, that can make them complacent, right? Right? Because they're just like oh I got this, so I don't really have to work on it, right? And I've seen that a lot with mm-hmm. with smarter kids, um, or if you you know if, obviously if you tell a kid that they're dumb. <laughs> Right? They often won't work. Or you imply that they're dumb. I mean, right. rarely would a teacher say a kid's dumb, but you might imply it accidentally by something that you said. Right. Um, then that could make them hopeless, right? Right. So it's like the kind of thing is you want to make sure that it's it's calibrated such that, you know, it's not a... There's no fundamental state of yourself, right, that makes... Or in on the lar- going back to the larger scale, there's no fundamental state of society that makes it oriented towards good or bad things. It's just actually going to require the... The work it's the details that matter
0: right so like the future isn't good or bad it's just different and we need to make sure that the changes are positive basically
1: right exactly so yeah. so i don't i don't know i mean i i don't know that i have a i guess my my main thing that i've i've learned to understand about this is is this idea and i don't know if you again if you agree with it that like before i was like let's try to get away from advocacy and now i'm thinking maybe that's just sort of baked in right
0: Well, I think you can make an attempt as like a thinker or an academic or something to uh, create an unbiased account of likelihoods. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's sort of what Hansen's trying to do in Age of M. And what I think I think actually Kurzweil is trying to do that, too, in his books, just with a very different worldview um, where you're just saying like. There's, here's the data that I'm marshalling, here's the underlying theory about how the data relates that I'm using, and you combine those two things and you extrapolate out, and here's the, the, the range of likely scenarios.
1: Right, given this set of assumptions. Given the
0: set of assumptions. And you just, you can have those assumptions be, I think, fairly neutral in terms of um, optimism and pessimism on many dimensions. Maybe not neutral in terms of like their technological capability dimension, maybe that one you have to make a choice, but... Um, you can be neutral on their moral qualities. You can be neutral on their political consequences. But a lot and of it just comes you know, down to
1: writing style and like the sort of affect that you convey to your reader. Because again, the readers are going to lump it into one of these categories almost well, despite right, what you right, do. Right, right, right.
0: Will you be perceived as, as optimistic or pessimistic? Maybe you can't avoid that. But I think it is actually... I don't think it's totally impossible. I'm not sure how valuable it is, but I think there's some value maybe in making an attempt to uh, make purely descriptive statements about um, what you think is likely for the future
1: yeah yeah I would I would agree with
0: that um, but I do agree that most of what we find valuable in future studies and most of what I'm interested in is more of a um, an evaluative uh, uh, approach where you would start maybe with that but then you would say okay, uh, of the things that are likely, here's like one of them, and here's uh, some judgments that I'm making about whether they're things we should be working toward or working against, right, uh, or or something like it's that. It's
1: just very tricky to actually make predictions that don't bleed into advocacy because you you state your assumptions, like you were saying, like mm-hmm. so given one, like let's assume that you know progress continues at the current rate. Say it could be an assumption you could make, or right. let's assume that this part advances and this part doesn't advance, right. right? And so, like, then once you make that assumption um, and then that ends up in a bad result, then it's sort of like... Then you're a pessimist. Well, or then you've implicated that that assumption is bad. And since that assumption is just the actions of people, now that you've identified the problem, people start shifting to avoid the
0: problem. I see. Right? It's
1: like this thing is like, you know... Like, Doomsday, for example, like you, could, you could describe, you know, the Doomsday is just around the corner because of X reason,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? But then Doomsday never comes because once you've articulated that, once everybody understands that, then they start avoiding it, right?
0: Right, right. So this is the uh, self-negating pro- prophecy. I guess that's what it <laughs> is, is. what is. you're yeah, saying. Yeah. You're saying it's like if everybody listens to Cassandra the first time, then nothing bad happens.
1: Yeah, it's it's just self-negating and self-fulfilling, like, pretty much, you know, with, with anything statement that you make that's sufficiently sufficiently um strong enough to capture people's imagination inevitably that's going to be the effect as people either are going to want to if you describe a good outcome people will steer towards it if you describe a bad outcome they would steer away from it right um, now
0: one thing before we move on from this is how much do you think this optimism pessimism frame is related to uh people's like ulterior goals like their their political goals and things like that they Tribal affiliation goals and things like that. Like, do you think there's an element to this where it's like, if you are incentivized to, you know, want to support government action because you're on that side of the political spectrum, then... Uh, you're more likely to be pessimistic about climate change because that's a problem that can be solved with government action. So it just fits into your world. So via. are
1: you saying just does this map onto the, the current political landscape in the U.S.?
0: Yeah. Or just how much of it do you think is right? Is is sort of driven by um, our hidden motives to like be part of our political coalitions and uh, uh, you know agree with ourselves and and confirm our own biases and such. Oh, like I'm that. sure
1: a lot of it is right because yeah. uh, again a lot of it's. Well, actually, and so that's the other reason I wanted to talk about this, right, is, is some of this is stemming from content, right? Again, if I describe a, given a certain set of assumptions, if I describe a bad outcome, I could be trying to be as descriptive as possible, and that's still going to come across as pessimistic just on the merits of the substance, Right. right? But there's also things like writing style and the way you talk and the other signals that you send that are, you know... Put you tend to put people in one of these two camps, and of course, those are you know have a lot I'm sure to do with tribal affiliations mm-hmm. of various kinds, mm-hmm. right? You know whether you you signal whether you are upset about a particular future or not. Like if I if you say that the future is going to be very unequal, like as Tyler Callan says, an average is over, for right. example, but you don't also signal some distress, <laughs> yeah, about that, right? Then you're going to be you know read as more conservative, which he in fact is. Right. Right. So yeah, I definitely think it's related.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. I think there's a certain amount of this that is just, yeah, driven by our normal, like here's, here's what I would expect if that's right. And maybe this is true. Maybe it isn't, but I would expect that people would not be consistently optimistic or consistently pessimistic, but instead would be optimistic about some things and pessimistic about others as according to what their larger package of beliefs would predict.
1: Right. Well, so certain outcomes, I guess are right. ambiguous, right? Like,
0: well, for example, since we were talking about Tyler Cowen, right. And he definitely thinks the future will be more unequal in terms of income. He, you know, what does he think, uh, the effect of climate change is going to be on the world, you know, as just in another example, like his optimism or pessimism or his affiliation with a good or bad outcome will change. Regard, um, as you move from topic to topic
1: Sure Well I mean again Some outcomes like nuclear war Everyone's against Most people are going to agree are bad Right But yeah. some outcomes like Again income inequality um, are, are somewhat litmus tests For like how you feel About various political concepts right? right I mean you know You could make the case That an unequal future is fine right? Right Right So yeah it does You're right It does matter the topic
0: Yeah well, I mean, I keep using climate change, but that's a weird one where, like, I think it's kind of like nuclear war in that everybody agrees it's bad if it happens, right? <laughs> like, nobody thinks, like, um, well, it's just fine if we completely cook the planet. But what people disagree about is, like, you know, how likely is it? You know, is the science sound? Is the, is it is it a real thing we should worry about? Although I think there's it- a strain
1: of people on the right now that just would say that maybe... It's a it's a sound concept, but just it's not going to be that severe. Right. Or it's like it's not You know, it'll there'll be problems and we'll get through them and that life goes on. Right. Like, I think there's some camp of people that feel that way about it.
0: Right. Well, they just think that the models are exaggerating how bad it will be. Right. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some extent to which. If it's actually that bad, everybody would agree that's bad, right? right? Like if the oceans rise four feet or whatever, that's I think no, way beyond anyone's predictions. So I'm just using it as a massive example. or if the you know if uh, something else like you know the entire United States becomes a desert like the Sahara is now, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody would agree that's bad. Like if that were, actually going to happen everybody would agree that's bad news what they tend to disagree about is will that happen you know is that within the range of possible outcomes blah blah
1: blah well you know see climate change is a weird one too because it's a slow moving catastrophe Mm -hmm. so it also has this property of you know you sort of like as you get closer to it it's affected by it's affected by itself Right. Yep. Like as it starts to get worse or show itself, it does incentivize more action to mitigate it.
0: Well, but it also unleashes more runaway processes like uh, the tundra melts and all the methane escapes the tundra. Sure. There's feedback loops right? that
1: could accelerate things. Right. To, and then it's not slow moving at that point. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not good. Still enough.
0: slow moving in the grand scheme of things, but could accelerate. It's speed.
1: But it's not like yeah. you know, you wake up one day and, you know, a coastal city's underwater. No. It like doesn't in seem its entirety. To like that. I mean it doesn't yeah. there's no way it could work like that. Right. right. I mean things can happen quickly but not quite that quickly. So right. there's like there's an ongoing like you know interaction between what's happening with the climate and and what people are doing about it. Right. Um that again makes it even harder to predict. Right. Um anyways the last thing I wanted to say about this and I, I think actually one of the main reasons that I haven't even gotten to of why I was thinking about this is that I think, you know, much like tribal affiliations sort of get in the way of arguments, mm-hmm. right? And and a lot of arguments that should be about the merits end up really being about that. Mm-hmm. And so then those can be wasted discussions. I think that some arguments in, in sort of the future space are really about, you know, whether the optimistic tone or the pessimistic tone is better for society, right, and, and which direction we should be correcting it. Oh, yeah. And I also feel like that is, you know, it, it's good to at least, I, it's good to highlight that and make that explicit as like a, something that could sort of get in the way of other conversations. So, I mean, it, for example, it relates to the AI risk arguments, right? I mean, there are discussions to have about, you know, what is the danger of AI given what we know about how, you know, intelligence and computation works and so on, right? But then there's also disagreements that you could have about whether talking about it is a good idea right there are people that are concerned like if we talk too much about ai risk right we're going to freak everybody out and there's going to be an ai winter again and you know the ar markets ai market's going to crash yeah. and it's going to be bad for progress
0: yeah and there's some real world evidence that that's not wrong right like um nuclear power is a good example sure. of this, right there were a couple of high profile missteps with nuclear power back in like the seventies. And ever since then, basically the whole industry has had a, a, a terrible time, uh, because we've been so reluctant to build new stuff. Um, and arguably we've burned a lot more, you know, fossil fuels and caused a lot more damage to the, to the planet than we needed to during that time. It's because of a perception. Yeah. Because of a public perception of it being dangerous um which was totally avoidable i mean just different management different practices different it could have it could, it could have never happened
1: but it's just it's interesting when these arguments that are you know like when somebody is is making a case and what they're trying to do is manipulate perceptions yeah right to create the outcome they want either they're trying to build something up to create optimism and create progress or they're trying to you know uh you know it makes something sound scary and dangerous in order to create motivating pessimism to avoid it. Right. Um, You know, that can get all mixed up with the other arguments about what's factually occurring or, or value statements about what should and shouldn't happen mm-hmm. on the merits. And it just becomes this like sort of soupy mess. Well, or, or I guess I'm just saying like, like there's this sense in which like thinking like this about like I'm going to use my optimism or pessimism to directly influence the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, can cause some, you know, insincerity yeah. and like disingenuous uh, behavior in arguments, right? Because I'm going to make something sound scarier than I even possibly think it is because I think it's very important that right. people are scared enough to do something. Right,
0: to motivate them, right. Or I'm
1: going to make it sound way better than is like totally reasonable to expect, you know, to like drive people to try harder. I guess maybe what I want are names for these arguments. Right. Like, I just wish I had terms for for these concepts, right? For the for the idea that, you know, we, we need to avoid avoid pessimism because it causes hopelessness or avoid optimism because it causes complacency, mm-hmm. right? As the implied argument that's sort of under the surface of a lot of stuff people write. I want to just be able to sort of name that
0: something right, concise. Right, right. Yeah, it'd be good to have some kind of an argument or word that you could use to describe that. I think we should invent such a thing. So listeners, email us your suggestions.
1: All right, let's uh, wrap this up. So until next
0: time. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit ReviewTheFuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at ReviewTheFuture.com.